0: Amen. Well, Thank you, choir. And thank you, Dan, worship leaders this morning. Instrumentalists, it's so good to worship together. Would you join me in Deuteronomy chapter 26? Have the text there in front of you as we hear from it this morning. Now, five years ago, Alice Pleebuck made a decision that would alter her future or really her past. She sent away for one of those just-for-fun DNA tests that you've been hearing all about. And when the tube arrived, she spit and spit until it filled it up to the line and she sent it off in the mail. She wanted to know exactly what it is she was made of. Now, she was 69, already had a pretty rough idea of what she would find out. Her parents were both deceased and were Irish-American Catholics who raised her and her six siblings with church Sundays and ethnic pride. But she wanted more concretely to know about her father, the son of Irish immigrants, Jim Collins, who'd been raised in an orphanage from a young age, and his extended family tree was a little more murky than she was comfortable with. After a few weeks during which her saliva was carefully analyzed, she got an email in the summer of 2012 with a link to her results. The report, she says, was confounding. About half of Fleabuck's DNA resulted in what she expected, a mixed British Isles bloodline, like she thought. The other half picked up an unexpected combination of European Jewish, Middle Eastern, and Eastern European descent. Surely somebody in the lab messed up, she thought. And so she penned a nasty letter to Ancestry.com in the early days of of, uh, user DNA testing. She wrote the company a nasty letter informing they had made a mistake. She talked to her sister. She talked to a few other people. They agreed maybe she ought to just take the test again. And sure enough, with the results coming back, she discovered that it was in fact true that her DNA heritage told her something about herself that she'd never known before. She writes, it posed a fundamental mystery about her very identity. It meant that one of her parents wasn't who he or she was supposed to be. And by extension, neither was she. Now, eventually, Plea Book would write Ancestry back again, saying, you guys were right and I was wrong. But, you know, she's not the only person who's had this story or who wants to know who they are. And I wonder this morning, do you know who you are? The number of people who have had their DNA analyzed by direct-to-consumer genetic genealogy tests has more than doubled in the last year. Only two years ago, the number of total of all the companies who do this direct-to-consumer DNA testing was nearly half of what it is today. And during 2017, it was reported that the number of people who have been tested in their DNA for this kind of genealogical questions and answers is more than 12 million. Earlier this year, the genealogy company Ancestry.com, based in Utah, announced that it has tested more than seven million people itself, including two million people in the last four months of 2017. The company's customer roles exceed all of their competitors combined, with the second largest being Google's 23andMe, who has tested more than 3 million people. So if you heard that right, in 2015, all the companies totaled one and a half million tests. Today, more than 12.2 million people have been tested. Everybody, it seems, wants to know who they are and where it is that they come from. Do you know who you are? Who do you think that you are? A TV show by that very question, hoping to capitalize on the same genre, popped up recently on TLC. Like most good TV shows, it's a spinoff of a BBC series by the same name. In each episode, a different celebrity goes on a journey to trace parts of his or her family tree. And so, followed by an expert, they map the course of her, his or her genealogy, hoping to discover something impressive or surprising about a celebrity's DNA. The TV show promo says, quote, To know who you are, you have to know where your story begins. Well, they're right, actually. But if we want to know who we are, we'd better be looking to the right story. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, the Israelite people are instructed to remember exactly who it is that they are. Deuteronomy reports this passage that we've had read as a part of one of the sermons of Moses. Having lived for a generation in the wilderness, they're now standing on the verge of taking possession of the land that God had promised to them. And the Hebrews receive instructions about how to live once they get there and how to act in worship and what to bring before the Lord. As we've read, one of the first things they're to do after they have come into the land and settled in it is to take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land the Lord your God has given you. And they're supposed to put it in a basket. It says they're supposed to go to the place where the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. And they're going to take that basket of these first fruits, the passage explains, and to set it before the priest. It's an act of worship, a, a liturgy of how they were supposed to carry out their worship, what they're supposed to do in this ritual reminder of who they are and what their relationship with God is. And so this presentation of the first fruits... It's this moment that lets them enact and declare this unique identity given to them by God. So as they brought this offering to the temple and placed the basket before the priests, the text tells us they're supposed to declare two things. One, that everything that they have received from the land, everything that's grown up into their hands is a gift from God. And two, that as they claim these things, as they take hold of their identity that God's called them to be, they are living out the fulfillment of all the promises of the book of Genesis. The promises, the covenant that God had made with their ancestors. And after they've done this, the priest will take their offering from them and place it on the altar before the Lord. And as this is done, the text tells us they were to recite a very specific response they were to recall a story. And so as the story goes, they would say, My father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became great, a mighty and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. But then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice. And saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror and with signs and wonders, he brought us to this place and has given us this land. If you're familiar with the biblical text, you know that what we hear in this passage are echoes of things that had long since been promised. That God would bring his chosen people and give them the land that he's chosen for them. It's a recounting of events that any reader of the Old Testament up to this point already knows to be true. That in the biblical tradition, the great patriarchs of scripture trace their origin back to this geographical region of Mesopotamia, or in Hebrew, Aram. And so the ancestral home of Abram, found in Aram, is where Isaac and Jacob, for example, go back when they need to find wives in Genesis 24 and 28. It's the modern-day area of Syria that stretches as far west of the mountains of Lebanon and east to the Euphrates River. This is the story of God's people, not just where they are from, but what God has done since then that he has brought them out of slavery in Egypt and rescued and redeemed them and placed them here in the land. And that's the story they're told to retell every time they bring this offering. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell explains how cultural narratives influence people. He argues that the traditions and attitudes that we inherit from our ancestors can directly influence the outcome of our lives, our relative success or failure, in a number of things. In the book, for example, he tells the story of the Korean airline provider that more than any other airline provider was at risk of fatalities and crashes, that in the 90s experienced more errors in the cockpit than every other airline combined. Research showed, and later corrected, that it was cultural misunderstandings that led to the errors in the cockpits. Different attitudes and behaviors of what it meant to both submit to and hear from a captain next to you. But also cultural barriers that existed between traffic control agents and the pilots in the cockpit led to numerous crashes of the airline. He also explains, a little closer to home, why it is that southern men are more aggressive than northern men. Citing a Harvard study that studied men walking down a hallway who were posed with a confrontation and how they responded, he points out that it's the descendants of tribal herdsmen of Scotch and Irish background who have come to America that are to be uh, credited with the numerous accounts of murder that followed in the foothills of Kentucky in the post Civil War Era, Why was there more violence there than anywhere else, he asked? Well, it's because of where those people were from. The identity, the territorial nature, the aggression that they had inherited from their ancestors. Well, it turns out there may be something to this genealogy stuff after all. Gladwell writes, Who we are cannot be separated from where we're from. So when Deuteronomy 26 speaks of a wandering Aramean, they're recalling the heritage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their tribes, their ancestral home and history. And the words chosen here, they point to a rich tradition, but also they remind the people that their ancestors were a vulnerable people. That another way to translate this word wandering is to say that they were an at risk kind of people a wandering clan who have become who they are, not because of their own physical strength or because of their intellectual prowess, but because God has chosen to make them who they are, that he has called them from where they once were and made them into something else. More than that, they recall the whole story of their captivity in Egypt, the slavery their ancestors once endured at the hands of the Egyptians and the redeeming work of God in delivering them into the Promised Land. So we read in verses 5 through 10 that in bringing their offering to the Lord, they're to declare to the priests the story of Israel's most treasured memory. It's an identity-shaping narrative of all of Israel's life. All in these verses, in this proclamation they were to make, is preserved for all Hebrew life and identity that they were Yahweh's people. And you may hear at first a more than captivating explanation of Israelite worship about baskets and priests and altars and Arameans that you don't quite identify with. I mean, how can that really connect with your life? But the story calls them to indwell it, to make it their own, to see in the story of their ancestors, a story that they themselves did not live. Many of them entering the Promised Land weren't even around when they were captive in Egypt. But they're hearing in this story, as they proclaim in this act of worship, a very specific message. Remember who you are. You see, the stories we know and believe to be true about ourselves and our world shape, change who we are. Stories shape us. Our lives get meaning and purpose from the stories that guide our understanding. Maybe it's no surprise then that on the verge of inheriting a new land and pursuing this new identity that God had given them, the Israelites are being taught to remind themselves that their ancestor was a wandering Aramean, a vulnerable at-risk person who has been taken in to the purposes of God, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the world. Alistair McIntyre in his book After Virtue uses a funny story to help explain how certain events receive their meaning in light of the story that they are a part of. He imagines himself to be at a bus stop when a young man suddenly approaches him and says, the Latin name for the common duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Now as his story goes, what does that mean? What is he supposed to make of these comments, of this sentence the man utters in front of him? I mean, it's understandable as a statement, but the problem is how to respond to it. And and why is this man saying this in the first place? Well, there could be several explanations. Maybe the young man has mistaken him for someone he saw in the library yesterday who walked up to him and asked him, what's the Latin name for the common duck? Or another explanation might be that the young man has come up to him, having just been in a session with his psychotherapist who's helping him deal with painful shyness, and the psychotherapist urges him to talk to strangers, and the young man asks him, well, what do I say? And the psychotherapist says, well, anything. And so he says the Latin name for the common duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. He's breaking out of his shyness. Maybe that's it. Or maybe, and this one's a little more fun. He's a foreign spy waiting at a prearranged rendezvous, and he's just uttered the oddly chosen code sentence, which will identify him to his contact. That'd be a fun story to encounter. You see, in each case, the meaning of the odd encounter changes depending on which story you place it inside of. In each story, in fact, we find a different meaning for the sentence. Do you know who you are? I wonder, is it clear today what story your life is a part of? What story are the events of your life pointing toward? What meaning are they providing? That's a kind of a fun game. So let's try a second odd statement to guess the context. Try this one. Better than the last time I was wearing a robe. Now, there's several options for understanding the meaning of this one. I get it. Maybe it's just a man enjoying his first warm cup of coffee on a cool morning after a long hospital stay when his wife says, how are you? Better than the last time I was wearing a robe. Or maybe it's a Supreme Court judge who's being confronted by a reporter, having just written her latest opinion, when the reporter says, how do you feel about this Supreme Court decision? And she says, better than the last time I wore a robe. Or maybe (laughs) how should we put this? Maybe the choir member was asked at lunch after church by their innocent, beautiful, sweet child how they felt about this week's choir anthem. Eh, Better than last time I wore a robe. See, the story matters. One year ago today, Ken Parker was among the hundreds of white nationalists who marched the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia, in a rally of hate-fueled riots. I was a dragon of the KKK, said Parker. And then the Klan wasn't hateful enough for me, so I decided to become a neo-Nazi. But it was inside a Charlottesville parking garage that the heat-exhausted Ken Parker was touched. By the, uh, by the kindness of a young woman. A filmmaker there to document the hatred that she saw approached him and cared for him and helped him. Compelled by her kindness, he later approached a neighbor, an African-American, William McKinnon III, who's also the pastor, it happened, of a local church. After being invited to attend that church, the former KKK leader stood before the 70-person African-American congregation on April 17th of this year and shared his own testimony. Ken Parker says the loving and gracious response of that congregation was overwhelming. Not one of them, he said, was angry at me. Ken Parker later joined others from his church on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean, each of them wearing white robes, entered the water one by one, hand in hand with their pastor for baptism. And still dripping from the celebration and standing back on shore, he was asked, How do you feel? Better than the last time I was wearing a robe, he said. You see, Ken Parker received a new story, and suddenly everything about him, even what he was wearing, had a completely new meaning. The story he now finds himself a part of is the same one he was reenacting in the middle of the ocean in his own baptism. The story of a God who's come to rescue his people, who himself has been made human, was killed on a cross and raised from the grave. Or as Philippians 2 says, a God who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and Bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the story that had captivated Ken Parker. But it's not just a story that he should know about or that you should know about, it's the story that shapes who we are. Theologian Leslie Newbigin put it this way, the way that we understand life depends on what story we consider ourselves to be a part of. What is the real story, he asks, of which my life is a part? The Christian story provides for us not just something to look at, something that we should come each week and study and get some things to agree about or pull out some beliefs that we can hold on to, the Christian story provides not just something to look at, but something for us to look through. We have to not only know the story, Newbegin says, but the story of Scripture causes, calls us to indwell the story, to hear in the story of God, our story, and not just to observe it or look at it, but to make it our own, to become a part of God's story. now this Old Testament story, the passage we read today, may feel foreign to you, removed from your experience. How could it be yours? But future generations of the Hebrews were never in Egypt. They weren't a part of the acts that they're describing. When they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt, they're making that story their own. The speech works so that the speaker each time becomes a present tense participant in something that happened in the past. They're reminding themselves over and over again that above every other story that could or would define who they are, they choose to be God's people and to receive from God a certain story about who they are. And make no mistake, there are plenty of other options in the ancient world. No fewer sin-driven stories to lead God's people astray than we find today. And if they can allow themselves to be shaped By God's story, we discover there's hope, not simply for them, but for the whole world. You see, this, friends, is the calling of Christian life. And what was true for the Israelites is no less true today. We live in a day of competing stories. In fact, we live in a day that says, really, there can't be one true story of the world. Each one's story is equally valid according to their own experience. Even more, we live as people who are so out of touch with who we are that we forget again and again what that will mean for our daily lives, our careers, our families, our neighborhoods, to live as people who have been redeemed, called up into the work of the God who is still redeeming. But God's story... That story that we come to know most fully in the person of Jesus Christ, the one that is alive and at work amidst us by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the true story of the world. And we're called not simply to look at it or to agree with it or to apply some piece of it every now and then, but to let it remind us who we are. I wonder this morning, Who do you think that you are? No less than 10 languages are used in the gospel ministry that takes place on this campus every week. Cultural backgrounds that originate from all over the globe, family histories of every economic scale, heritage shaped by all sorts of stories. But what we believe as Christians is that every one of those stories is carried to the feet of Jesus and laid down. That there's nothing about who you are personally that supersedes who you are in Jesus. That we receive from him a new story and we let it correct and revise and reshape every cultural understanding that we have in every part of who we are. Nothing is safe from the reign of God in the life of Christians. A wandering Aramean was not literally my ancestor. My family comes from the backwoods of Louisiana and a small London neighborhood in England. But I take this story and I make it my own and it becomes who I am. And of all the things that make a claim on who I am, my job or my place or my heritage or my nationality, my talents or my appearance or my personal past, the heritage that I claim above any else is the one in Christ that tells me who I am. This means for all of us that how we mother and father, how we talk or act, how we work or play or rest, all of it has to be done with this new story in view. Remember, the text says, Who you are. Be transformed, Romans 12 puts it, by the renewing of your mind and do not conform to the pattern of this world. You see, to be a follower of Jesus is to become a part of God's story, to take the story that we encounter through the scriptures and let it become who we are, our very identity, to receive together. The fact that God has made us a people for himself, like we heard read in three different languages this morning, once we were not a people, but now we are a people. And so you receive from God not only your identity personally, but where you belong, that the community of Christ, the body of believers that gathers in this place each week is not just somewhere for us to attend or to go, but a people to which we belong. This Scripture says, is the true story of the world. Begun in the story of a wandering Aramean and working its way through a whole history of unlikely characters in the house of Israel, the God who heard their cry and delivered them out of Egypt has also redeemed us. And in Jesus Christ, we too have received an inheritance. Once we were not a people, but now we were a people. We were not Israelites, but we've been grafted into the family history that was begun long ago, that God might set apart for himself a people for the sake of the world. And you too are called to be a part of that people. Remember who you are. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, receiving not just the story, but receiving our story. We come and we are challenged by this scripture, not just to know it or understand it, but to live as a part of it, to let this story shape who we are. We pray this morning, Father, that you would transform the way that we live and talk and act, the way that we walk in our lives, that others might come to see and to know this story as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.